tonight on Arena. We preview HBO's new crime series, Landscapers, starring Olivia Colman and David Hewlett, and a new box set of David Bowie material from the 1990s. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. When we look back at the oeuvre of one David Bowie, we tend to focus on the career-defining work of the 1970s and early 1980s albums like Hunky Dory, which turned 50 just recently, Scary Monsters, Heroes and the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. But the reaction to his output in the 1990s is more complex the decade it began with grunge, endured Britpop and girl power and ended on drum and bass. And in a decade that was defined by such clear-cut musical genres, where does an artist like Bowie, whose creative habit was always to reinvent, where does he fit in? A new box set of his work from 1990 through to 2001 has just been released on vinyl and CD. Gives us an opportunity to consider afresh the depth of his work in this decade, a time when he was, on occasion, critically derided. Alan Corr is with me in studio this evening. Why this kind of, I, I suppose, bad mark in David Bowie's school report around the 1990s, uh, Alan? Well, it's it's hard to believe now, Sean, but uh, when these albums that we're talking about were released, uh, Bowie, who was m- once a man who was very much the future, was being written off as a has-been. Now, this was largely down to the uh, the critical mauling his band Tin Machine received, also the Glass Spider Tour, which came to Slane Castle in 87, and his album uh, from the same year, Never Let Me Down. Now, Bowie himself has actually called uh, this era of his career the Phil Collins years. So I think that when people look back at Bowie, we talk about the imperial phase, we talk about the 1970s, and then we write off the 1980s, anything after mm. Let's Dance in 1983. But this was actually an incredibly productive and creative period for Bowie. And I think, you know, unfortunately, as the 90s dawned, the critical consensus was that his last truly great album was in 1990, 1980, rather, with Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. And I, I think that we're overlooking a very, very interesting era for him. He was only mm. 43 at the start mm. of the decade, and he did a hell of a lot. So he began the, the decade in the doghouse as a kind of a curious left over from the gaudy 90s and he ended it with his godhead reconfirmed with a series of really, really interesting albums that really zapped the zeitgeist. Right, we'll, we'll, we'll go through some of those because a, a lot of that, the material you're speaking about is featured on this box set. Do you think that's the idea behind the box set given what's in it? Maybe you tell, give us a sense. It, do you think it's asking us to reassess the work of the 90s? Well, I, I think Bowie fanatics like me would, would have been familiar with these albums already. Uh, I think this is a brilliant opportunity to revisit uh, oh. the contents uh, of this box set and also what happened to him in the, in the 1990s. I mean, this is an embarrassment of riches. As you say, it goes from 1992 to 2001. It's called Brilliant Adventure. There are 131 songs. That's five hours and seven seconds of music. And it comes as both a CD uh, box set and a vinyl box set. And what we get is Black Tie White Noise, the Buddha, the Buddha of Suburbia, Outside Earthling and Hours. We also get a terrific live mm. album that's never been released before on vinyl and a remix album called Recall 5 and a coffee table book. So yes, this is a great opportunity to, to look back on a decade the Bowie's overlooked I guess over, with, overlooked. yeah and with a title like Brilliant Adventure the suggestion is there look you need to have a good route around here don't be just writing it all off absolutely I mean there's so much going on here and it's, as I say it has to be reinvestigated I think right um, black tie white noise 
This is generally accepted, I think, a 1993 album as a return to form for Bowie, yeah? Oh, very much so. Uh, the title, Black Tie, White Noise, is a reference to his then recent marriage to supermodel, a man. In fact, Bowie said that the whole album is a wedding present to her. It's also a reference to his love of black music and white music. Now, I must say, I love this album when it came out in back, back in 93. It's a real strutting funk album by mm. Bowie. Uh, I think in places he sounds rather like Scott Walker. Uh, vocally and one of the highlights of this album is his his cover of Walker's great song uh, Night Flights. Now for this album he reunited with Mike Garson who was one of the spiders from Mars and did that great work on Aladdin Sane also Mick Ronson was back on board and Bowie and him hadn't worked together since the 70s. He was also back with Noel Rogers uh, who gave him his biggest hit with that stance uh, some 10 years earlier. The album thematically addresses the racial tensions that were going on in America at the time. And in fact, a man and Bowie arrived in L.A. the day the 1992 L.A. riots broke out. So he engages with that. And there's also very uh, mm. more personal subjects being addressed as well. Let's listen to what was the lead single of the album, Jump They Say. They say that's really something Jump, they say, from Black Tie, White Noise, which is uh, one of the albums that features on this new box set that we're speaking about this evening. The box set is called Brilliant Adventure, features David Bowie recordings from 1992 through until 2001, and Alan Carr is begging us to reassess the matter of the 1990s and David Bowie uh, through this box set. His brother Terry is all over that song. In fact, you were saying his brother Terry is all over lots of songs, but particularly yeah. that song. Yeah, uh, I, I, this uh, very personal song for, for Bowie, Jump, they say it's a, the lead single, terrific song, and it, it reflects Bowie's feelings about his schizophrenic half-brother Terry, who sadly uh, died by suicide in 1985 when he walked in front of a train at a railway station. Uh, but I, as I said, I think a lot of Bowie's work mm. in the 70s was certainly informed uh, by his half-brother. Uh, the beautiful sax work there is by Bowie himself. Uh, the trumpet solo is by the, the late, great you, uh, American uh, trumpet player Lester Bowie. No relation, and how could he be any relation anyway? Uh, but this, quite this a is trumpet solo, isn't it? Unbelievably good. It's a ter- terrific album musically. There's also great stuff mm. like uh, Miracle Tonight, which is a beautiful, uh, you know, perky pop song. Lots, lots going on here. But I think the significant song is probably the title track, uh, which, as I say, inspired by the yeah. 92 Los Angeles riots. It starts off with a great line. Getting my facts from a Benetton ad. I'm looking through African eyes lit by the glare of an L.A. fire. Let us move on then to the Buddha of Suburbia. Now, we'd had a few forays into the world of acting, but this is a different foray into the world of film from David Bowie. Yes, and Bowie himself uh, in 2003 described this as his favourite of all his albums, Sean. Mm. Uh, now, this was written for the soundtrack for the BBC adaptation of Hanif Qureshi's satirical coming-of-age novel about a half-English, half-Indian teenager in 1970s London. And it was overlooked at the time, unfortunately, uh, which is a real pity because it's rather beautiful. And it reminds me in parts of Bowie's 1977 album, Low. Mm. It's also inspired by his own work in the 70s, the glam stuff and the synth stuff. 
stuff, also T-Rex and Roxy Music. Uh, beautiful soundtrack, incidental music, but also some great songwriting going on as well, I think. Yeah, and I guess the whole theme here of the, the young homosexual couple uh, in Britain at the time, sex and the church, could also be yes. used, used for this country, which incidentally, in the 1990s, was it quite a year for Bowie in Ireland? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he spent a lot of time here in the 1990s. I mean, he, he would have done a series of secret gigs here. He would have played in the factory re- uh, rehearsal studios. He would have played in the Bag It In mm. in 1991. I remember queuing and giving up after two hours. He also played gigs in the Olympia and he played the Point Theatre with Morrissey on the night, on the day of the uh, uh, marriage referendum. Wow. Uh, which is only won by something like 0.5% of the votes. There you go. Is that is that a reason to play sex in the church? It possibly is. I suppose when you're listening to a soundtrack, is it is it unfair, uh, Alan Carr, to, to judge it purely as music? Because that's Sex in the Church from David Bowie's soundtrack to Bud of Suburbia, and this is part of this uh, box set that we're speaking about this evening from work from the uh, 1990s. No, no, absolutely. This is this is quality standalone stuff. You do not need to have watched the the TV mm. adaptation of, of the novel. Uh, I think uh, now it is six minutes and twenty four seconds. That song. And it is it, yes. It there's long, of, and there's much longer songs as well. I can assure you. It kind of sticks with that basic riff that we heard there doesn't it yes but some beautiful stuff like The Mysteries which is seven minutes it's very atmospheric ambient Mm. kind of low type music from 1977 so no it stands alone uh, of its own virtue I think 1995 they say it was perhaps the most curious and divisive album ever certainly of Bowie's of Bowie's yes outside yes now this was challenging as Britpop was, nice as Britpop was sweeping the UK and grunge was sounding its death rattle in the US, Bowie unleashed this extraordinary art rock concept album, which was teeming with millennial paranoia and cinematic ambition. The concept was it was followed followed a detective, a fictional detective called Nathan Adler who was investigating the murder of a teenage girl in an underworld of art crimes. Mm. So this was a chance for Bowie to you know, build worlds and create strange characters. It was an album where he reunited with Brian Eno for the first time yeah. since the 70s. Uh, and he went all kind of William Gibson cyberpunk and the sonics were distorted, fragmentary, atonal. Now, Bowie was always very influenced, influenced by William Burroughs and the cut-up technique of writing. And outside has all the luridness, I think, of... Uh, the Naked Lunch, he gets a chance to put on various voices. At one point, he sounds like a disturbed child. Oh, he is, a, he plays a disturbed child. He sounds like, like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> another, another, he's, a, he's an old London geezer who looks through windows for demons. And it's just, it's just great post-apocalyptic dystopian Bowie stuff. Do you know, can you tell us what character he, or why you've chosen the, the song that you suggested? May I play from outside that album, uh, The Heart's Filthy Lesson? Well, this, I think this was the lead single from this particular album. And it's, I think it's the most um, telling song on the album. It's, it, it kind of gives you an idea what the rest of the album sounds like, I think.
A little flavour there of the heart's filthy lesson from outside, kind of mid-1990s album from David Bowie and part of Brilliant Adventure, a new box set that Alan Corr is speaking to us about this evening. Just wondered if I was listening to that in particular, Alan. You know, if we if we think of Bowie and, and the 1990s, I talked about grunge, I talked about Britpop, all of those things. To what extent was what Bowie was doing in the 90s either a riposte to some of the musical uh, flavours that were there during the 1990s or indeed uh, an, ad- an adaptation or an ad- uh, taking them on. Well, I mean, Bo- Bowie, I mean, he, he's certainly a maverick in some ways, but he, he's also a man who's refined mainstream versions of underground music. Mm. And he, he's always done that. He's been very clever at knowing which way the wind blows. So not so much a riposte as, as his his redefinition of stuff that he was kind of encountering in the underground and then bringing it overground and giving it a louder voice. And that's often seen as a criticism of Bowie as well as a kind of a, a, a complimentary way of looking at Bowie. Mm. Some people accuse him of just mis- misappropriating other people's work and not exactly passing it off at his own, as his own, but popularising it. I don't see any problem with that. He's always done that throughout his career. And he certainly did it with the next album he made, Earthling. I think that was in 1997. Yeah, and um, in, in terms of Earthling... If- we sound as if we're in a concept situation here. We're also sounds as if we've got some reference back to the, you know, the out of outer space element of the seventies and eighties in, with, with in Bowie's work. With, with with that title, certainly, I think that was uh, very self-referential. All right, this was his twenty-first album, and it really left a lot of people bewildered because mm. uh, Bowie embraced the then very hot genre of of drum and bass. Uh, critics mo- moaned that he was desperately trying to stay relevant by bandwagon jumping, to which I say fooey. Um, <laughs> now, it's a, it's a terrific album. He just it was released a month after his 50th birthday, which he celebrated by playing Madison Square Gardens in front of 15,000 of his closest personal mm. friends. Now, he'd been kind of hanging out with the likes of Underworld and The Prodigy, the UK dance bands, and he wanted to juxtapose all the dance styles that he'd been working with live. And I think thematically and lyrically, these songs are about alienation, about the start of the growing cognitive dissonance we have with the domination of technology in our lives now. And, you know, Bowie himself, just to reference what you were saying, he, he makes a comparison between, between uh, th- this album and the kind of the early 80s kind of period, the late 70s, early 80s of Lodger and Scary Monsters. And it certainly has a real atonal sonic assault. Uh, there's some great stuff on here. I, I would call this a delirious psychodrama of an album. Yeah. It's led by a great single called... Uh, Little Wonder, in which Bowie sounds like the most sinister he's ever sounded. So you, you feel that in some ways he's picking up on the famous statement from the Jeremy Paxman interview here about the internet. Do you think that's present in this album? He, he made that very precedent, prescient statement to Jeremy Paxman a couple of years later in Newsnight interview in which he predicted the internet would well, start let, dominating let's, let's, yeah. let's, let's listen to what he said, actually. What the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool, though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. What do you think... I mean, when you think, then, about... The Is there life on Mars? <laughs> yes, it's just landed here. But yeah. that's... It's a simply a different delivery system there. You're arguing about something more profound. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment. 
where the interplay between the user and the provider will be so insimpatico, it's going to, it's going to crush our ideas of what m mediums are all about. Uh, but it's happening in every form. It's happening in visual art. The breakthroughs of the early part of the century with people like Duchamp, who were so prescient in what they were doing and putting down, the idea that the piece of work is not finished until the audience come to it and add their own interpretation, and what the piece of art is about is the grey space in the middle. That grey space in the middle is what the 21st century is going to be about. Well, way to put it. That's uh, David mm. Bowie in that famous interview with Jeremy Paxman. Um, j just moving on then to the latter part of, of the 1990s and we dip into the new millennium as well. Uh, 1999, as he has done all his life, another change of direction really yeah. here. Yeah, I, I think that the next album he put out in 1999 was called Hours and this was a much more mellow and melancholic mm. album after the abrasive madness of Erkling. He wanted a much more slick and polished sound and I think this album is interesting, Sean, because it's full of intimations of his own mortality. Um, if you look at the cover art, there's a short-haired Bowie persona from the Earthling album and he's exhausted being cradled in the arms of a long-haired, more youthful ah. version of Bowie. And the back cover art sees three Bowies dressed in black, looking very serious, with a large black snake coiled at their feet. So he's looking back on this album. I, I think this is a, a beautiful, stately piece of work and a, a, the most overlooked album of the 1990s by, uh, by Bowie. And ahead of the curve again, Sean, he was the first uh, major artist to release a complete album uh, to download on the internet before it was released physically. So he was ahead of the curve there again. And, goes and yet, back to the and funny thing. enough, you're, you're talking about being the ahead of the curve in terms of digital release. And yet we still have all of that album cover art that you're talking about as well. So he was adjusting what he was doing to the medium in which he was releasing the, yep. the work yep. as well. I like this um, track, Brilliant Adventure from ours. It's, it's purely instrumental, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's have a listen. And quite an eerie feel to it for me. <laughs> In fact, I was talking about the six and seven minute songs and some of the tracks earlier on. That's only a two minute track. It's quite quite a short one. But mm. just as we as we come to the to the end of the item, Alan, and to the to the I think what will be really the one that's going to excite Bowie fans in particular. Um, this is this is Toy. Yes, this is finally the first official release of his two thousand and one album Toy, and I think this is the main prize for. Bowie Uber fans out there if they don't already own the bootleg. It was recorded uh, following his triumphant Glastonbury 2000 performance. He entered the studio with his band, which included Dubliner Jerry Leonard, to record new interpretations of songs he'd originally recorded between 1964 and 1971. And the idea was that he would do a surprise drop of the mm. album. Um, very quickly turned turn the release around very quickly but unfortunately the technology wasn't available so he shelved it so here we have Toy in all its glory right. in this new in this new box set before, before we play a little bit of the London Boys from Toy there's a lot of material on here mm. I'm guessing that you'll want to have been saving your pennies through the year if you want to buy this yeah, it's the ideal Christmas present for uh, the, the Bowie fan in your life and there's a lot of them out there it's not cheap 
uh, I think it retails at 400 quid for the uh, And by, by 400 for the quid, do you mean 400 euro or 400 pounds sterling? Uh, 400 uh, euro. 400, 400 euro, euro right, yeah. okay. Um, which is a lot of Bowie bonds. Sure uh, but there's a lot there's a lot going on here. There's a there's a beautiful coffee table book as well. There's uh, so many slabs of vinyl on there. And here we have the first ever vinyl release of uh, Toy, the, the legendary unreleased album. Okay, so it is for the Uber fan and it is for the Uber fan that has 400 euro or lots of good friends who are prepared to pool together to get the 400 euro for that particular fan. Um, the London Boys from Toy, what would you say about this as we head into it? Well, this is, this is a song I've always loved by David Bowie. It comes from uh, 1966, uh, from his Brock pop phase before uh, the pre-fame Bowie. And this was the one I really wanted to hear on the, on the remastered, re-released mm. Boy. Uh, and I must say, I, I prefer the original 1966 version. This new version from 2001 is kind of kind of bombastic and robbed of the poignancy. But Bowie is still a fantastic document of what Bowie yeah. was at in 2001 and a reflection of what he was doing in the 60s as well. Okay, thanks for coming into us this evening, uh, Alan. And let's listen to The London Boys from Toy. You can't make a thing Cause the meat is dead You moved away Told your folks you're gonna stay away Bright lights of water street You hope you make friends with the guys you meet Somebody shows you around Now you've met the London boys Things seem good again The London boys from the album Toy and that is the uh, first time that that has been released officially that particular album and it's all part of the box set that Alan Carr was talking to us about this evening. 400 euro is what it will cost you but it is called Brilliant Adventure 1992 to 2001 the music of David Bowie. Yeah, I definitely would. I mean, mainly because it's such an unusual way of actually telling a story like this. And visually, it's really stunning. And I think getting to see two brilliant British actors on fine form is always great. And it's a really fascinating real story, too, in real life. Aoife Barry there speaking to us about Landscapers, which begins on Sky Atlantic tomorrow, December the 7th. And that is our lot for this Monday evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields researched. Michelle Gibson and Janice Furphy were the broadcast coordinators. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. Thornton Wilder is a 20th century American novelist and playwright best known for his Pulitzer Prize winning play Our Town. The Long Christmas Dinner is one of his shorter works for the stage. Just one act, in fact, of 50 minutes and the production that has just opened at the Peacock Theatre in Dublin. It tells the story of 90 years, four generations of the Bayard fan. Theatre critic Helen Meany went to see it for us uh, last week. She's with me in the studio this evening. Before we get into The Long Christmas Dinner... Um, new restrictions announced for theatre. It's, it's it's very difficult to to kind of look at the industry having to take this on the chin again, Helen. It really is. Yeah, it's um, it's a blow, I think, for for a, a lot of people um, and for companies. Um, it's this this uh, return to a, or the introduction of a fifty percent mm. capacity 
for audiences uh, is really difficult for, for particularly for the smaller companies and venues. I mean, the bigger bigger theatres can probably you know spend some time now in the next you know are currently planning yeah. to reduce the capacity and and possibly ringing audience members and you know rearranging dates, offering alternatives. But that you have to have a lot of uh, you know a full team in order to do all that box office and staff. Well, and, just the administrative and, task of yeah. that alone. I yeah. know that the Abbey had ca- had capped capacity at seventy percent for both Faith Healer and the Long Christmas Dinner. So now they have to go back to the people. There's twenty percent to be dealt with somehow. Sure. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, I'm I'm caught up here. <laughs> Let me just take a drink of water. It, it, there's there's twenty percent that has to be found who can kind of step to one side and and not go in some way. It, that's with a big administration staff behind you. What about the smaller companies? How are they going to handle all this? It's going to be really difficult. Um, and it, in some cases, there will have to be uh, cancellations or, you know, or postponements of productions going back to the way it was last year. Mm. Um, you know, for, for the smaller companies with who can't, who can't have uh, understudies, who can't have a cast change at the last minute, who can't uh, afford the box office hit. So if you're, it's, it's actually affecting how you plan ahead. Yes. So what we yeah, don't know yeah. is what's going to happen uh, after early January so you know the uncertainty of that and, and the precarity of trying to say plan a tour if you're a small an independent producer director with a small group of uh, actors or dancers or opera singers whatever it is musicians you, you just don't know what to do about that and uh, well, you attended the, the Peacock Theatre it was last Thursday you were saying yes. to me and and the restrictions, you mean, there were restrictions on you in terms of your behaviour on the evening? Well, you have to prove your, that you've been double vaccinated. So you have to have your cert in order to actually mm. get in. And then you wear, you wear your mask, you're seated throughout. There's no mingling. The bar is not open before, during or after. So there's no socialising. There's no eating or drinking. <laughs> um, you remain seated with your mask throughout. And, and then immediately you're not encouraged to linger in the foyer or anything. So it's, it's not very sociable from yeah. that point of view. But you find yourself back out on the street. But at least you've seen you've seen the show, you know. And the other important thing to say is the cast, the performers um, have been double vaccinated and they're yeah. constantly being tested throughout, you know, during the rehearsal period and during the run. They're taking tests sometimes every day, every other day. So in, it's actually one of the safer things you could do at the moment is to go to the theatre, you know. I'm going to have to take a little a little track here because I'm all caught up whatever yes. way I swallowed there a minute ago. I need to take a drink of water. Let's listen to some music so that I can speak to you properly in a couple of minutes. And now I've got a drink of water. I'm fine. Here we go then. Uh, Helen Meany with us uh, to talk about the new show in the Peacock Theatre, the long Christmas dinner. In fact, it's a very long set of Christmas dinners. They're very short dinners, but there, there, there are lots of them. Tell us the, the basic setup of this piece by Thornton Wilder, Helen. Yes, so it, it, it's a 50-minute piece that covers 90 years uh, at top speed um, and encompasses the lives of four generations uh, in that time mm. of, of, a, of a pretty prosperous, uh, it, it's not quite clear, East Coast or Midwest sort of um, American family. Um, and uh, in this production, the, the time, it spans from the early 20th century up to the mid, you know, turn, turn of the 20th century to mid-20th mid century, mm. which is a bit later than what... Thornton 
Wilder had himself envisaged. But that covers a huge amount of social change and, of course, world wars and, and industrialization of America. So this, these are well-to-do. Uh, the Bayard family are well-to-do. And they have, they have staff, they have maids, they have a, a, a very lovely and formal Christmas dinner each year. But like, in the space of a second, we move from one year to the next. That's what I think, because yeah. 90, 90 years and 50 minutes, you know, that's kind of one and a half a minute, more well, but or we less. Don't, they don't go through every <laughs> yeah. single year, but they, and they might jump six years, or they might, but, but sometimes it is just one year in the beginning to try and establish yes, who, who the, these the, people the are. And, so, and they never leave the table. So the scene never changes from the Christmas dinner table. So it's very, very clever. So uh, who explain a little bit about the Bayard family to me then in terms of, because obviously we have to get several generations of it, and yes. we don't have a cast of millions. We have um, a cast of 12. Mm. And so they're That's all big du- enough cast. It is big. It? It's a lovely ensemble, and they're all doubling up. Mm. Um, so we started, you know, with sort of paterfamilias, the, the first couple with the elderly mother, and then their children arrive, and then their children, and so on. And it all happens through entrances and exits, uh, stage left, stage right. Um, really quickly and actually you can lose focus do, you, do not look away for a second mm. because you've jumped uh, you know forward and also you have to pay attention to the names because the family names keep repeating I suppose that's not unusual yeah. uh, and so there are a lot of Genevieve's and Lucia's and Roderick's and, and uh, you know repeating themselves and also the dialogue repeats so the same phrases recur in the Christmas over the Christmas dinner about oh the sermon or about the icicles on the trees or mm. you know or about will the young the next child boy child join the family firm and you know there's certain things about expectations about gender roles and so there's the outside world does impinge but it is it is very much about the family dynamics and over that period of great social change yes and And I was just wondering about that the, the period that we're talking about here and how does the production how does it show us that we're moving, you know, through practically a century. Very, very subtly. Uh, so it's it's directed by R- Raymond Keane um, and Sarah Jane Scaife, who mm. are both, you know, very practice of physical directors. Um, with And so there's mime. So everything, there are very few props. There are just glasses on the dining table. Everything else is mimed by the actors, including their ageing posture or facial expressions. And it's, it, like it's, it's quite lightly done. So somebody just starts to stoop a bit over the years or and so the you know the the the, the attention to detail of performances even over such a short time is is really marked. I know that was that suggests to me that the the costumes would have a, a kind of a neutral aspect. Very to them. neutral, yeah. and I think that's why the directors decided not to stage it set in the nineteenth century because it would have all been courses and top yeah. hats and you know much more formal. So this is this is neutral, just you know mid length skirts and then going through you know through the forties and fifties, very tiny changes, and our character might put on a shawl as she gets older, or you know, and um, and and so so really a lot is being of the cast and Sally Sally Whitnell's uh, set then does she uh, does she give us a, a neutral set you're talking about there's very little on the table for example other very than little glasses. just wine glasses and then it, uh, the, it's a stripped back set where it's a it's a kind of elegant formal dining room with panelling and that doesn't change mm. so we just very good use of, of of changing of lighting but it's the idea is that it's an elegant you know uh, formal room so it doesn't need it's very under furnished the whole the set is really spare and stripped back and it's it's very beautiful actually and so the, the lighting has to do a lot of the work. And who's it? The lighting here is by... Mm-hmm. It's uh, Eve Cavanagh, isn't it? Sorry, Stephen no, Dodd's Stephen Dodd, lighting. Yeah, Stephen Dodd, yeah. 
Stephen Dodd, and I think very, very, very good. And also Aoife Kavanagh is the sound, the sound designer. Design. And so, but the, she avoids, thankfully, any Christmas carols or any, there's no, no jingle bells or anything, you know. So it's a very, even though it's a Christmas dinner the whole time, it's, uh, it's a very formal one, you know. So did you feel you got a potted history of uh, American culture or American social history? No, I, I think that you get, you get that as a background. It, it's much more universal than that. Mm. It's about the, the dynamics of life and death, the, the, the ageing and re- the recurring um, themes of love and loss, uh, death, birth. And then the, the external world impinges in, in sort of areas such as the factories of, of the, the family firm is growing and growing through the 20th century. And, and they start talking about the soot coming through the, through the house walls and this sense of it's becoming a very industrialised place. Um, and also the world wars. So there's the loss of one of the sons to the war. And that is another cause, a sort of source of grief. And there's a lot of talk about the passage of time healing pain and grief and yeah. suffering. So it's, it's t- the passage of time and the treatment of time and our experience of time is really what the central subject of the play. Well, I guess. Yeah. Um, and how typical is it, would you say, of, of Thornton Wilder's writing, that kind of... I mean, it, it demands a lot in terms of the stagecraft. That it's it's pretty typical, used. actually. You know, you see it also in, in Our Town and also in The Skin of Our Teeth, in which he encompassed a thousand years. <laughs> Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah. So this is really nothing. Years is nothing yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and uh, he won a, um, an award for that. And also, I just saw today, and I should say this: that our town is on at the Lear. Um, oh, right. And it's opening a student production opening on Friday, just by coincidence. So if you want your double dose of Thornton Wilder, you get Wilder, a real sense yeah. of Thornton Wilder. Yeah. Uh, briefly, then, and oh, we're not not necessarily briefly the cast. We're, we're talking about a cast of twelve here who have to do all sorts of doubling up, and um, yes. I'm sure, and playing their own father and their own son at different times along Absolutely. the way. Yeah. So uh, really, anybody really stand impressive. out for you? I mean, it, the thing is that they really are a close knit ensemble. But I was very impressed by Fanula Gajax in particular. Mm. She plays Genevieve, who is. A I mean, one of the one of the themes actually is the lack of opportunity for women. You know, a, a talented woman, her only possibility was marriage and children, really. And she, this woman doesn't do that. She wants to be a musician, but she ends up commenting a lot on on the cyclical nature of the the, the right. repetition of things in the family. Uh, Will O'Connell is also uh, very impressive. All right, um, a recommendation? Yeah. Yes, I really found it. I mean, not only for the stagecraft, but performances and design, and very beautiful. Right, yeah. it worked for you. That's Helen Meany speaking to us about the long Christmas dinner. It's at the Peacock Theatre through until Friday, 31st of December.